Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Jenna Grant, a cultural anthropologist from the University of Washington and author of Fixing the Image, Ultrasound and the Visuality of Care in Phnom Penh, published by the University of Washington Press in 2022. Fixing the Image is an interdisciplinary study of the use of ultrasound technology that interrogates its meanings for doctors and patients, but also the broader insights it provides into Cambodian society. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's really wonderful to be here. Jenna, I'm sure our listeners will be as curious as I am about what made you decide to focus on ultrasounds. Indeed, I get this question quite a lot. It started with curiosity just while I was doing other work in Sisapan, which is a provincial town near the border with Thailand. I was doing work there in 2004, and I noticed signs for ultrasound services in front of private clinics. Later in Phnom Penh in 2006, I also saw an abundance of signs, and they seemed to grow each time I came back to Cambodia. My PhD project was originally on an HIV prevention clinical trial, but that became unfeasible when the trial was canceled by the prime minister. I needed to shift my focus, and medical imaging uh, combines a lot of my interests, specifically in technology, in visual practices, and in medical practices. So that's how I came to ultrasound. Jenna, you opened the book with the story of a patient whom the doctor believed was afraid of ghosts. Can you tell this story? Sure. This story is involves the head of the imaging ward who, in the hospital uh, where I was doing my field work, the ultrasounds were performed by medical doctors who had training in radiology and or gynecology. So he performed a scan on a young woman, probably in her mid-20s, and she had come to have a scan because she had a pain in her abdomen. So she came for a general abdominal scan, and I watched the scanning exam in the exam room. Her friend was also in the room with us. And then after the exam, the doctor said, there's nothing there, you're fine. And he joked with them a little bit to sort of ease what seemed to be her anxiety. And I talked to him afterwards, and he said that actually she was afraid that perhaps she had a malady that was caused by a ghost. And he said that has happened before. It's certainly not common, but understands that patients come for many different reasons. And I found this story interesting because it shows to me how ultrasound moves between worlds that may be considered separate, for example, medicine and then other ways of knowing about or understanding the cause of a malady. So that could be sort of in traditional medicine, uh, through dreams, through Buddhist healers, for example. So the story kind of hinted at this richness and the ways that ultrasound kind of travels in society. I also was a bit worried about starting with this story, and I mentioned this in the book because it's quite exotifying. So I write a little bit about that and sort of the danger of starting with a story about ghosts. In other words, I didn't want to convey that 
Cambodians as a whole are superstitious about technology or all believe ghosts cause illnesses. Those are not the generalizations I was trying to make. But it was more about how technology moves between these different spheres through different domains that are often considered separate. That's a very important point and one that resonates across Southeast Asia. It reminds me of someone I knew who was highly educated but believed that she had a brain tumour from sleeping in the bed where her cousin, who had died of brain cancer, had slept. So while it's important not to exoticize, it's also important to recognise that people do have different ways of understanding health and illness and how um, illnesses are transmitted, I think. And this brings me to another thing I wanted to ask about, which is patient demand for high-tech solutions and, and visible quick fixes. Again, this really resonates with what I know from Indonesia, but I was interested in the points you make in the book about the politics of under and over care in Cambodia. Yes. Thank you for sharing that story also about your friend in Indonesia, because I've definitely encountered similar stories too in Cambodia. The What I call overcare and undercare is probably an imperfect shorthand for kind of excessive treatments and then neglect. But overcare with Ultrasound involves performing scans when they're not necessarily indicated. This is most common in pregnancy where ultrasound exams are not needed for medical purposes. WHO recommends three times per pregnancy. In reality, many people, not just in Cambodia, but around the world, get more scans than that during a pregnancy. But also in other conditions where ultrasound might be thought to provide an answer or to do important diagnostic work. There's a phrase that I discuss in the book that conveyed this to me really vividly, which was, get an ultrasound of your stomach, 20,000 real, get a scan of your head, free. And this was just sort of a joke, a little bit of poetry, in my opinion, uh, but it conveys how patients and people are aware of this kind of economic imperative to provide ultrasound scans. Jenna, you note in the book that these small and relatively inexpensive machines can be basically bought by anyone with a bit of money. What problems does this cause? If this means that people who are not trained to produce or read scans provide ultrasound services, for example, cardiovascular services for abdominal, potential abdominal disease and obstetrics and gynecology. So the most common, as I mentioned, is pregnancy. And these pregnancy services are provided by midwives and nurses and doctors in Phnom Penh. The concern for doctors and patients is that untrained providers are able to provide these services. And that is something that the Ministry of Health and the government, they're aware of. There are certainly laws or sort of articles of laws called BRACA about who can operate medical clinics and minimum standards and responsibilities for clinics. There's even a praka about the training of radiological technicians. So the Ministry of Health does have policies about this, but it's more about kind of capturing what's happening in the private sector. Is it a case that the policies are implemented in public hospitals, but it's hard to police what's happening in that private sector? I think so, yes. This has received attention for at least the past 20 years. And there have been a lot of efforts to regulate the private sector, but it's important to note that most practitioners, doctors and nurses and midwives have worked or continuously work in both public and private sectors. So there's people kind of moving in between sectors. 
it's difficult to regulate that in some ways because people are also government employees. So those people have medical training of some degree from everything from a midwife up to a doctor, but are people who have no medical training also using the machines? I can't answer that with confidence. It was hard for me to do research in these more kind of underground clinics, if you will. So I'd rather not comment on that just because I I don't know. But it does bring us to this question of technology, which is at the heart of your story. Can you talk us through the role of medical technology as a vector for modernity? Yes. In the first chapter of the book in particular, I trace what I call a genealogy of technology and medicine. And I do so by focusing on biography, if you will, of one hospital, the Russian hospital, which is where I did a large portion of my fieldwork. So using this hospital as a kind of as a character, one can see different waves of donations of technologies following independence. You can also look to the colonial period to see vaccines and medicines and other kinds of medical technologies that were circulating in Cambodia at the time. But my focus was really after independence, and this hospital was built by the Soviet Union. In 1960, it was opened, and it was staffed by Russian and Cambodian health professionals. And the emphasis in early sort of promotional materials, such as government magazines and the medical journal of the hospital, is on the radiological capacities. So I found that interesting. These are sort of the yearly proceedings, if you will, of the hospital. At the time, Cambodia was thought to have had as advanced, if not the most advanced, medical technologies and capabilities in Southeast Asia in the early 60s, and the ability to do certain procedures that weren't possible in other places. So... I see this moment of post-colonial development, biodevelopmentalism, if you will, both as an initiative from the Soviet bloc, also the United States and France, and also of the Cambodian government, the Sankum government at the time, which prioritized sort of high-tech hospitals and the spectacle of opening hospitals and showing machines. Interestingly enough, this style of giving donations and popularizing the practice through media is is something that I witnessed. I went to a number of kind of what they call commissioning ceremonies where corporations donated medical equipment and these are filmed and broadcast and photographed. So in some ways, there's some really obvious similarities over the decades in terms of technology, modernity, and particularly in the sphere of development. But then the other thing that's important is that many of the doctors that I worked with would talk about the quality of machines and almost as if they were indexical of the quality of medical services. So, for example, when I interviewed the head of the radiology board, I remember him saying in a slightly offhand way, as I was showing him photographs of the x-ray machines donated in the 60s from the Soviet Union, he said, oh, those are the same ones that we use now. So there's a bit of a sense where the narrative of Cambodia's promise and its futurity, its future greatness, lingers in the sense of disappointment and unfulfillment. Yeah, and I mean, another aspect of that disappointment is when people in the contemporary period are given equipment that has problems or doesn't work. 
what strikes me here is this really speaks to the way that the global aid economy works. And you've talked about the past, but what do the technology transfers tell us about Cambodia's place in the in the contemporary world? Yeah, so this isn't as much in the book, but I've written a bit about it in articles. There is a active donation scene of technology, but there's also, of course, the Ministry of Health and private hospitals procure equipment on their own. So I don't want to in any way suggest that it's only um, that these machines are only coming from abroad. JICA, the Japanese Development Agency, donated a number of machines, but they're also sold by equipment distributors in the country. But certainly there are remnants of old technologies in hospitals and clinics. There are donations sometimes of equipment that people might not have the expertise to produce images, to read them, to maintain the machines, and to repair them. So there are indeed technicians who are trained to work, for example, on x-ray machines, but there's a sense that people don't want to receive kind of secondhand goods from wealthier countries. In fact, I've been at ceremonies, donation ceremonies, that called attention to the fact that this ceremony was unique in that GE, this American multinational, was donating new machines, right? And at the time, the Minister of Health said, this is not the norm. So he pointed that out as uh, an important change. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? The idea that you're no longer in a time when you're prepared to take cast-offs and second-hand goods. And we know internationally that often people shed their technology thinking they're doing a good thing, but in fact just making rubbish in other countries. But going from a literal discussion of repair to one that's more metaphorical, two key concepts that you invoke in the book are repair and stability. Could you talk a bit about what these are and why they're so important in Cambodia? Are they just a legacy of Cambodia's violent past or something more? Thanks for this question. I think that there is a sense in which these concepts are related to a legacy of a violent past and the effect of that violent past on health and healthcare. That includes sort of the decimation of institutions, of education, of individuals who provide services, for example, and also on the health of vast amounts of the population. So these are through civil war, through genocide, but also through socialist reconstruction and sort of an ongoing low-level civil war into the 90s. It's about that, but I think what I was trying to suggest, particularly in the introduction, is that kind of the a global imaginary is about a country that still needs to be fixed. I'm not saying that this is right or this is the way things should be, but this is what I sensed from in the health sphere, the way many people who were coming to Cambodia talked about what to do there, right? That it was sense that the system needed to be fixed, the system needed to be repaired, and it also needed some stability, government stability. Stability is something that, for example, the Prime Minister Hun Sen repeatedly echoes in his speeches about something that his government has brought, right? Since for 44 years, there's been a stable government. This is what he said. I was at a graduation ceremony just this morning, and he talked about this fact in his speech. So there's this very straightforward sense of the effects of a violent and chaotic and erratic past on health systems and health. 
But I also wanted to connect this to a sense of the mechanized image and why, what might be appealing about an image that is produced by a machine that can stabilize processes in the body through it, taking a snapshot, if you will, or slices, depending on the machine. And then um, using that with other forms of information to produce a diagnosis or to produce knowledge. Even if that stability is momentary, it's not a permanent state. For example, people know that diseases change, treatments happen, bodies change. But I was interested kind of in a, I guess, in a conceptual sense of trying to think about the relationships of mechanized image and these sort of material aspects of history in Cambodia. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask before turning to some of the more theoretical and methodological questions dealt with in the book is this idea of seeing. You've just been talking to us about the images, but how does this idea of seeing play into the patient experience? The word that I heard used and used myself for seeing in the case of medicine was mo. I write about this a bit in chapter four, Mole is a little bit like a C in English in the sense that it can mean a lot of different things, like to look at something, but also to understand or to interpret. So it has a this kind of richness of senses. It's also something that people use in phrases about looking at things and whether or not know how to look at them. So for example, people might say, I don't know how to see this or understand this or interpret this, right? But using this word move. So seeing is important for medical practices, both within biomedicine and, and in traditional healing and in Buddhist healing. So one of the things I wanted to be clear about is that my project wasn't to destabilize sort of a hierarchy of senses in which seeing is at the top. I mean, there's been a lot of important work in feminist science studies, for example, about kind of disrupting that hierarchy where sight and the seer is privileged above all else. And I wanted to build on that work, but also to acknowledge that it's not only in quote unquote the West where seeing is important. And so let's think about the ways that it is and how this relates to knowledge and how this relates to desires that people have to understand their illness, but also in the case of pregnancy to come closer to the being that's developing. So do you want to talk to us a little bit more of that body of work that underpins your discussion of seeing? I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to relate this very literal concept of seeing as we we understand it with these images to um, the politics of it, perhaps. Sure, sure. Well, there's two areas that have been most influential to me, and I mentioned feminist science studies, and this is just to name a few works. Donna Haraway, kind of her early work on scientific knowledge and objectivity, as well as Evelyn Fox Keller, talk about sight as particularly important for producing authoritative scientific knowledge and also talk about the effects of that and who is excluded from the ability to look. Sight is important in creating subject and object distinctions, for example, in the work of Anna-Marie Mole. So there's a sense that the ability to look and to do so skillfully is a powerful act and that there's a patterned ways about who has been able to see and who is 
who is looked at, right, and who is, doesn't have that expert seeing. So that's a very kind of sloppy way to describe the way it's influenced me. But kind of within that tradition of science studies, the denaturalization of sort of categories of both object and subject and seer and seeing. And then there's another tradition that's also important to me, which you could talk about is in visual anthropology, but also in post-colonial studies about the production of knowledge about race and gender through images, right? And this could relate to science, but it could also be ethnographic, anthropology, or postcards of people taken during colonial periods, films, so that there's another tradition of critique of visuality as a colonial practice. So those are two fields of scholarship that certainly um, there's some overlap, but when I came to them, they were quite separate. I'd like to um, engage a little with that last point. You talk about the role of images as a state practice, not only in colonial times, as you've mentioned there, but also to the present. Can you walk us through the all thinking on this? Yeah, this in this sense of kind of images and as a way to kind of name and control or produce knowledge about, is that what you were? Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in hearing about that in the present context as well as the past. Yeah, it's a difficult puzzle in my mind, actually. It's a puzzle of images because they fix, if you will, right? They, they sort of stabilize someone in a moment or a body part, for example, or a situation. But then we all know, and more and more uh, with smartphones, for example, that images are fixable, right? They're, they're manipulable. So if anything, people are savvier, I think, kind of in everyday life about images as potentially revealing, but also potentially fake and altered. So I see these, this sort of puzzle of images as co-productive, if you will, with knowledge and care. So what I mean by that is that the, the production of images and also practices of relating to images are ways through which knowledge practices emerge and care practices or care in the sense of healthcare. So certainly the state uses images to control and to manage populations. We can think of ID cards, maps, kinds of photographs. And we can also think of sciences using images to understand and describe human and non-human world. But, but I think that we have learned, you know, through an abundance of scholarship from around the world about, about the diversity of image-related practices. And so part of the book was trying to think about the case when there are a lot of factors contributing to the authority of a particular image. And for ultrasound, the, the fact that it's produced by a machine, so it seems less kind of alterable by human subjectivity. The fact that it's in an institution of medicine, which has some authority. So these things that contribute to the, the factiness, if you will, of images and their authority and also the affective relations that people have with images as a way to bring things closer to them, if you will, particularly in pregnancy, to learn not as a sense of control through the image, but as a sense of coming coming close to in some ways. So there's also a, a, a body of literature about that in photography, for example. And that brings us back from the state to the individual. The last question I wanted to ask you about this before turning to a couple of questions on methodology is about your comments on the instability of images, which we've just talked about at length in the contemporary period, 
but also our desire to make them better. And of course, all our listeners will relate to this um, with the use of filters and so on in social media. But in the context of these ultrasound images, what does the desire to make images better mean? There's a, a sense for lay people, patients, their family members looking at medical images, recognizing them as expert images, but also commenting on their aesthetics. For example, uh, you know, people would say to me, oh, I don't think this, this x-ray is very good. Look, it's cloudy or it's fuzzy, for example. And so there's something about the way that the image looks that's important to people, even if they're not making a claim to understand all that it depicts. But then the other sense about this kind of making the image better is what I saw with ultrasound, prenatal ultrasound in particular, and the interest in color, as it was called, ultrasound. So the idea that a color ultrasound is more sort of natural and lifelike looking is not uncommon, again, in Cambodia, but also you can find these sort of 3D, 4D ultrasounds around the world. And the way that people preferred those was to say they look more natural, they look more beautiful. And that was the sort of language that people used about the image. The doctors, you know, would say color doesn't really add any clinical information. So we don't know if we should be doing this. We have to charge more for ink, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I think everyone involved recognizes that this is this is a complicated practice. This is a practice that involves aesthetics and desire about certain kinds of images, and that it's not strictly just a clinical, if there could ever be such a thing, practice, right? Some of the debates in about ultrasound, prenatal ultrasound and feminist ultrasound, sort of the, that it's just entertainment, right? People go just because it's pleasurable. And certainly that's, I think, I agree with that, but it's also extremely anxiety producing, in the United States, it's mandated as a politics of abortion in some places that are trying to outlaw abortion. That's fraught, sort of the kind of requirements and whether or not one's compelled to use ultrasound. But I think that the idea of having a more lifelike image is related to the sense that prenatal ultrasounds are medical images, but they are also akin to portraits. So that makes them kind of multiple in ways that an ultrasound of the thyroid or the cervix are not, right? There's no sense that people said when they were looking at their thyroid that there was a personhood at stake or a being at stake, right? So that's one way that I thought about the aesthetics of having a better image is that in some ways, it matters for things like clarity, as I mentioned in the beginning, but in other ways, it relates to a different kind of regime of aesthetics around portraiture, and that's specifically in the case of prenatal ultrasound. Mm, I've never seen a colour ultrasound or an ultrasound of a thyroid. Colour in this case meant colour as in like a, a tint, a skin tone. And then certainly there's colour used in Doppler ultrasounds, sort of red and blue, that are measuring the sound say, of a heartbeat. But what people were talking about with prenatal ultrasound in color was about an image that would be printed or given to them on a DVD that was not kind of grayscale, but had a tint to it. I'm glad you clarified that because I really was thinking about brightly colored ultrasounds. No, no, no. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that, you know, anyone who's ever 
talk to someone who's had an ultrasound during pregnancy or been sent the image certainly knows that these images are much more than a medical tool and and they take on a, a status of their own very much as you say in the sense of a portrait but now I'd like to turn to methodology and told us at the beginning of this interview that really your first plan was not to do this study at all but to do quite a different study I'm sure our listeners particularly those who are in the early stages of their career would like to know how that but also then having pivoted, how you decided on the particular approach that you took. And I note here that it's quite an interdisciplinary approach drawing on both archival research and ethnography. Yes, yeah. Well, I the archival portion was not central in the way that I had planned my dissertation research. But during the course of fieldwork, and I did archival research in Phnom Penh at the National Archives, there's also a fantastic audiovisual archive in Phnom Penh called Bopana that has audiovisual materials for over the past hundred years. And so I both of these archives were very rich to me because I found images of and kind of discourse about medical technologies in these archives. I also went to colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence and to the archive of the the Tropical Medicine Armed Services Unit in Marseille. And the latter was, was also just a fascinating place. I didn't end up using a lot of the images that I took from the archive in the book, but mostly because I decided not to focus so much on the 50s and the pre the actual colonial period and then during the War of Indochina. So I guess in some, my methodology was, I thought about I should look into the history of technology, but I didn't have a distinct plan about how to do that. It kind of evolved as I was going. And again, the fact that there was an audiovisual archive was really special to me with this in my interest in visuality and seeing, for example, technologies depicted in propaganda films from different regimes from the 60s on. So I guess in some, if anyone's considering doing ethnography or doing history and mixing them, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Well, so do I. That's very much the methodology I used in my PhD too. But I want to take you back to that moment when you realised your first option was not viable. Can we just, if you don't mind, explore sort of the emotional landscape of that moment in your in your journey? Yeah, it was extremely difficult and wrenching, I'll say, because I was invested in studying the the politics, the kind of post-colonial politics of clinical trials. And what I had been looking at was the first experimental clinical trial in Cambodia. It was a, at a very large scale. There were new institutions created to manage this within the Ministry of Health, for example, the Human Subjects Review Board. So I was interested in all of these practices around a clinical trial and also controversies around it, which at the time in Cambodia were led by a sex worker union, sex workers being the primary kind of population of the of this HIV prevention trial. This drug is now approved as a prevention. It's called PrEP in the U.S. At the time, it was just a treatment. So this was the early stages of looking at whether it could be used as a prophylaxis as well. The trials were controversial in other countries, not just in Cambodia, and they were controversial in Thailand and in countries in sub-Saharan Africa. 
But Cambodia stood out as a case where the prime minister canceled the trial. And this was a really difficult event for many people involved, local NGOs, collaborating and foreign researchers. And it was also, to me, an important event about kind of what does it global health research doing and what is it being asked to do by critics? So, but the thing is, is that when there's a really controversial topic for your PhD and a politically fraught one in which people lose your jobs, in my feeling, it was not ethical nor feasible to continue that research because I didn't want to endanger people's work by asking them to talk with me or spending time with them. So that's how I stopped after my master's research. I published a paper about it in social studies and science, but I I really stopped at that point because kind of for ethical and practical reasons, I guess. It was hard. It was very hard. And I talked it over with my committee and yeah, (laughs) switched gears to something um, that took up more of my interest in visual studies, which I had always had, but it was sort of a side project. And in in that way, it made it even more multidisciplinary, I suspect. (laughs) But but I think it is interesting and it's really good for people to hear these stories because, of course, academic research is seldom linear, at least good academic research. (laughs) But also I wanted to ask you, you know, having thought quite deeply about that project, did some of that thinking help you as you moved into what was ultimately the project that underpinned this book? It helped me a lot, and and maybe it also hindered me in the sense that I had a bit more of a focus on Euro-American and Australian aid than I might have if I hadn't already been looking at this clinical trial, because this was involved Australian universities and American universities. And so, so I think some of that interest in global health development carried through into this project, and maybe that wouldn't have been as prominent, frankly, whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know. But for example, Japan has given done a lot in sort of aid research. And now China uh, is, real, is more involved in health. At the time, it wasn't doing as much in healthcare. So I think there was a kind of a bit of a bias just related to that trial and sort of the actors in the trial. But it helped me a lot to understand the kind of employment and structural issues that a lot of medical practitioners face. Namely that at the time, this was sort of the high point of global health aid, sort of in the early 2010s, right? 2009, 2010. The Ministry of Health was the main channel through which aid came, health-related aid, but it's, it's extremely complicated to manage the reporting requirements, the expectations of different donors. So I had a heightened sensitivity to that, having all these different actors with their different requirements and frankly, their different priorities is a problem. You could call it a neo-colonial problem, right? That there's a a really important question to ask about how much and to what extent can the Ministry of Health determine its own priorities for the Cambodian population. That's really an element of the story that maybe you would have been blind to if you hadn't had that earlier background My next question is about language. I do a lot of research in Indonesia and have a high fluency in that language, but I also do research in Cambodia and Myanmar where I can't say much more than hello and thank you. You say in the book that you learned Khmer. I'm not sure where that fitted in with the study, but that you reached enough mastery to conduct quite a bit of research in Khmer, but at the same time not in complex medical settings. 
I'd be interested in hearing about your reflections on the role of language in your ethnographic research. I mean, language is crucial, right? And I took lessons throughout my fieldwork and I continue to study Khmer. And uh, I think that I just want to stress that kind of meanings, values, relationality, language is key to understanding a lot of these things. But at the same time, there's a value to working with people who have a distinct expertise. So one of the people that I worked closely with was Niri, who was at the time a medical student. So it wasn't just Khmer that she was talking about, for example, in terms of body parts or institutional language. But we had a lot of conversations about medical education, about the different types of internships she was going to do, about the languages in which she was required to study medicine, which at the time involved Khmer, English, and French, right? Sometimes all in one sentence, a professor might use all three languages, (laughs) depending on whether they were talking about change or an organ or time. I didn't end up writing a lot about it, but I certainly thought a lot about the language politics around medicine and in my own work. So you were talking about the politics of language in medicine, but there's also a politics of language and of other kinds of input when you are working with a local collaborator or assistant, especially on a project that ends up being a sole-authored book. I'm sure you thought about this a lot too. Do you mind sharing some of your thoughts with us? Sure. You mean about the politics of authorship? I'm actually more interested in the politics of conducting the research. I mean, there's a lot of researchers who, like you, work in Cambodia with some Khmer, but not total fluency, and therefore have someone who works with them who has a deep knowledge of the of the context as well as, of course, you know, is bilingual. And I'm just always interested to hear how people think about and manage that relationship. Well, I can say for me that it was part of a conversation about sort of when we did fieldwork together, when we did fieldwork separately, so often, but it did happen, and then talking together about what we had just seen or understood. So I think of that in terms of a co-production, and I think about that, those conversations as being important to the book. I know that they, it could be fraught, though, because of not only my subjectivity uh, as a white American English native speaker, but also that people in hospitals are often stressed, right? They're there because they there's something wrong or they suspect that something's wrong. So language is not just the words that people use to convey, but also the expressions, their face, the physical kind of orientation in interacting with people. And so I guess I just wanted to say that that's another kind of realm that can be ignored when people are talking about working with an interpreter or translator, wherein that's something that also people can learn, but it's also something that research assistants, for example, bring. I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think there's sometimes people who say uh, in this anthropology model that they do everything on their own. Hopefully we've, in anthropology at least, have learned to not talk about the work that way because it's rarely ever done alone. But the other thing that is important is that in my case, Niri was a medical student and knew about medicine. So she brought with her some of that expertise, but also, you know, she was thinking through the ways that doctors and nurses talk to patients. So she was not seeing patients on her own at the time, but would offer her own sense of the comparisons, for example, of 
oh, these doctors, they're from, she said one time, the communistic generation. They're so strict the way they talk to patients and we're not being taught to do that anymore. So those sorts of insights, uh, you know, I would never be able to come to in that way. (laughs) So it was invaluable. Well, thanks so much, Jennifer, for your insights, not only into this fascinating story, but also into the process you went through to produce it. Just before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you if you'd like to tell us something about what you're working on now. Sure. Um, Well, I'm currently living in Phnom Penh and I'm working partly with the Royal University of Phnom Penh with their PhD cohort. We're running a series of workshops on writing a PhD proposal for the Khmer Studies group. That involves linguists, historians, sociologists, geographers, philosophers. So that's part of what I'm doing. And then I also have an ongoing research project on anti-malarial drug resistance. That's something that I started working on with a collaboration in 2015. And then after getting a tenure track job and moving across the world, the project really sort of (laughs) was neglected for many years, I'll say. So I'm slowly getting back into it, but my interest here is on the ways that scientists understand and produce knowledge about drug resistance in the Thai-Cambodia borderlands. Jenna Grant, thanks for just joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Fixing the Image, Ultrasound and the Visuality of Care in Phnom Penh. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on this channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies. (laughs) 